Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. And we exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd certainly love to have you on the programme with us. Uh, Joining me on today's programme on what is a warm sunny morning here in the capital is James Kluski. James is a former professional tennis player and founder of High Calibre Collective, an organisation working with individuals and teams on the topic of high performance. James, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, great to be here. Yeah, likewise, James. Pleasure having you with us. Uh, certainly is a lovely day for it as well. Uh, now, what I want to talk about, James, uh, within leadership is the fact that um, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, the context within which we're recording this podcast, it's reminded us that every single day is a school day, really, hasn't it? And even as leaders within businesses, within organisations, we're always learning, aren't we? And part of learning is not seeing failure as a terminal thing and instead seeing it as a temporary setback. So in your view, as a former sportsman, do you think in some ways that we almost have to have that experience of failing in order to succeed in the long run? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's um, an incredibly powerful question just around, you know, COVID and what we've all been going through in terms of setbacks and, and things that are completely out of our control. Um, for me personally, as a, you know, as a former professional tennis player, uh, my career ranking was 145 in the world. And, uh, yeah, I did okay as a tennis player, but when, when I think about it, you know, the majority of sports people, whether you're golf or you're tennis or some individual sports, you're losing most weeks, right? So you're 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 facing tough times, you're facing these these challenges, and and I really think it's how you how you deal with those challenges and and the things you know that are so important and you know positive, being positive and and, and and looking at at the things that have have gone wrong and and, and I suppose you know, debriefing and seeing what you can do and what you can learn from these, these setbacks. Uh, now, having said all that, that's the easiest they've been done. Um, and I think, you know, with COVID, I mean, a lot of things are completely out of our control. Um, mm. uh, but I do think in terms of sports, similar, you know, when you watch the Olympics or you watch professional sports, you know, you can't control the weather, you can't control the wind, you can't control umpires' bad calls and so on so you can only control what you can control. And um, so I think sports does teach you a lot in, in, in that sense of, of, you know, all you can do is try and keep moving forward and, and, and uh, you know, realizing where you are, what you're learning from your mistakes, what you're learning from your successes and, 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 and moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And um, do you think that sort of your career with your sporting background has really helped with that transition into the business world for you as well? Yeah, like, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think there's definitely some challenges. I mean, we see a lot of staff around sports people who transition into business and some people, you know, struggle with it. And I, from my own personal standpoint, I would say, you know, as a tennis player, I was trying to climb a mountain. I was trying to move my ranking up up, up a mountain. And mm. um, and then I think when you retire from from professional sport, obviously you retire at a you know relatively young age, you've got your life ahead of you, and it's almost trying to figure out well, what is the next what is the next mountain, and um, you know what am I trying to climb now? What am I what am I trying to do? So, um, and I think business people go through that as well, right? Where you know, you start a new job or, you know, you're following your passion and so on. You're trying to find what, what gets you up about, out of bed on a Monday morning at six in the morning to go and, you know, do something. So so I think uh, for me, it was around trying to find what I wanted to, to, to do um, in terms of what, where my passion lies. Lay. Uh, and the second thing I think is, is what's really important is, is the people that you surround yourself with. Um, and I know you know, from hearing about the leaders' council and with obviously fellow leaders and so on. For me, it's all around like who are the people that you're putting yourself around because you need those people that are going to encourage you when you're 
you know, struggling along and, 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 and also um, encourage you when you're doing well or bring you back down to earth or whatever it needs to be. So for me, you know, as a tennis player, I wasn't the best tennis player in the world, but I always had this philosophy where I try and put myself around good people. I try and put myself around good players and, and learn from them. Mm. And I've taken that philosophy into business where, you know, I try and learn from the best if I, if I can and, and, and have mentors and, and a good, good group around me. I think that's so right, James, because um, for those starting out in business and trying to be successful, carefully choosing those that are around you, networking and surrounding yourself with good people, recruiting good people, those are some of the very, very best things you can do. And I understand that in your sort of post-sporting career, um, you've also been a private tennis coach to Richard Branson as well, one of the most successful business leaders in the world, of course. And I know, of course, you're coaching him, but I can imagine that you yourself have actually learned a lot by sort of surrounding yourself with him, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I've been very, very lucky to, to obviously work with Richard um, in 2015. That, that opportunity came, came about. And, and, yeah, I mean, for me personally, spending time with him, uh, he definitely inspired me. And, and I think his positivity uh, is, is um, contagious in some ways and his zest for life and, and uh, you know obviously realising the, the space dream recently and seeing that was amazing to see him kind of do that and, and you know I heard how he kind of passionately he's he spoken about that to me and others when I'm around him and uh, it's, you know I think when I was there someone said to me it's like doing a, a master's in business or an MBA uh, spending time with him so uh, yeah, look, I, I think I've been very lucky to, to spend a lot of time with them, but also the people that that um, come through the island and so on that I that I've met and interacted with. But for me, it's back to the core. It's the core message of of you know you have to try and put yourself around these good people and um, you know the power of mentors, the power of people you can ask advice to. Uh, that for me has been a, a core fundamental of, of the philosophy and, and uh, obviously I've been very lucky with, you know, my tennis has opened a lot of doors uh, mm. and it's given me opportunities to, to, to spend time with, with people like um, Mr. Branson. And um, some key things that you sort of took away from your exchanges with Richard, according to the CEO Today piece, just for those uh, listeners that may not have read it, um, are things like being positive, as we've talked about there, being there, present and paying attention, not allowing for distractions, going on the offensive, debriefing afterwards, but also looking after yourself. And I think within the context of a business, these are all very key aspects because giving yourself time as a CEO to sort of step back, have that sort of self-care, that work-life balance, that's something that's quite difficult, isn't it? When we're in the hectic world of running a business, let alone obviously during the last year when we've been working through a pandemic. So just how important in your view is sort of taking that time out as a business leader when you need to, just to prioritize your mental health? Yeah, like I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really um, it's a really interesting point, and I think a couple of things. I mean, I think like the old, you know, the old kind of Hollywood movie or whatever you want to call it, of the kind of working twenty two hours a day, and you know, and and kind of not looking after yourself and working yourself into ground. Hopefully, that I mean, I, I would like to think that it will change, and that is changing. You know, if I look at professional sport now, I retired in, in 2015 from from, um, from professional tennis. But when I when I went back, and I still obviously friends with a lot of guys who are, who are competing at the highest level, and, and one of the things that, that that I picked up from them is just the acceleration of of um you know of looking after yourself, of recharging, of taking time out, of like that that concept of perform at your best, you need to be, uh, you know, you need to be recharged and refreshed and you need to be kind of, um, you know, mentally doing okay, I guess. Uh, and I think the pandemic has obviously had a huge impact on, on how hard it's been. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that I'm perfect for any stretch of the imagination because I'm fundamentally not and we all have our own challenges. But, um, you know, tennis has been my thing to try and to, to, to keep me 
going and then you know I'm in Dublin tennis was closed for a number mm-hmm. of months so that was really hard you know um, so I think we've all had issues and, and, and challenges but one of the biggest things I, I picked up from my from my time in Richard actually was that you know I would play tennis with him twice a day um, and I would meet him every morning at 6.15 for a cup of tea and you know and a, and a chat and then we would play tennis but I came back from there and, and I remember going to a, to a business meeting and, and sitting with a uh, a C-suite executive and he had his phone on the table and mm. you know the light was going off on his phone and he looked just kind of distracted right and I remember I remember thinking back and, and thinking when, when I spent time with, with Richard and you know he didn't have he didn't have a phone with him on the island so he was always present when he was with me and the more mm. important thing for me was that it was non-negotiable that no matter how busy he was his physical activity was in his diary, so he was like tennis, he was tighter, he'd do something. And um, now I know you could say, look, it's a bit easier for him, uh, he's a billionaire and so on, but you know, he's an incredibly busy person, uh, and, and his, his physical fitness is really important to him, and he feels like he's more productive work wise if he's physically active. I think, you know, uh, we can lose sight of that sometimes, and I can definitely lose sight of that when you. When you you're, you're in a rush to, you know, send emails and leaving and all that sort of stuff. When, when in reality, you need to look after yourself. And, and what's the, you know, for me, it's tennis that kind of I enjoy doing. What's the thing for you that, you know, helps the productivity and if you get that for a walk every morning and run, what is it? And, and I think it's really important to look after yourself so that you can perform at your optimal level and, and help your team and your business and so on. I think that's so right uh, because and the pandemic certainly has made us a lot more self-aware of those aspects and we're talking an awful lot more about our mental health now. We're taking that downtime, we're prioritising the work-life balance and I think making sure that you're present and correct within that moment as you sort of discussed with Richard Branson, just putting your phone aside, not letting yourself sort of do too many things at once, just focusing on that one thing. I think breaking it down like that is certainly one of the best things that you can do for sure. And we talked a great deal about Richard Branson today, but um, are there any other sort of business leaders or leaders in general, maybe within the sporting world that you've perhaps encountered that you think have also influenced your way of thinking and maybe helped shape you into the person you are today as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been, been very lucky to, to spend a lot of time with some great uh, business leaders and a mentor of mine, that's called Kurt Long, who, who um, he's the founder of a company called Fair Warning. Uh, he he also uh, worked for NASA and launched rockets when he finished college. Um, and he successfully started and exited a couple of businesses. He will be a, a, a really big uh, influence on me. And I, I met him through Kennedy from the US. And, and he's very interested in the concept of business for good. And that, that you know, business is. is is there to make money and be profitable, but it's also something that, that has to have a positive effect on the world. And so he's had a he's had a really positive effect on me in terms of the encouragement that he's that he's given me. And another person who I who I've mentioned a few times before in previous interviews is uh, Dr. Ben Wright, who uh, I met in Los Angeles, who is the president of California Bank. Um, and he's from Colombia. Incredible business leader, incredible networker. Um, I would have lo- learned a lot from her in terms of just asking people for help, asking people for support, asking people for introductions where relevant um, and, and how you have to take a chance sometimes. Um, and, you know, I've talked a lot about I've talked a lot about positivity and, and the thing that I've picked up from a lot of these, these people is just, just trying to see the glass is half full and be positive. Mm. Uh, and, and, and trying to, you know, use that positivity for for, for good and and uh, to drive your business forward. And but there's, there's obviously dark days, and we've had dark days in the last number of months. But we are where we are. And uh, you know, I would sit down and say, well, what, you know, where do you want to be in the next couple of months? What is in your control? Who are the people that can support you to get there? And 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 do your best to, to do that. And um, and I think. You know, on the mentor people, uh, on the mentor side, and, and the people, so speaking about Richard and the positive people, 
you know, I think it's I think it's important to have, you know, not just one person that is probably, you know, there's a diverse group of people or a number of people that can that can give you that support and that encouragement and so on. So so um and and I think lastly as well, I think you also have to have your own personality as well. So like one um one entrepreneur said to me that when Steve Jobs passed away that there was a lot of people that were trying to be like Steve Jobs and mm. his point was not everyone is Steve Jobs, like you have to have your own personality and your own philosophy. Um, but you take the the, 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 the the nuggets from the different people and, and shape it in your own philosophy and your own um, the, the way you want to run your business. Yeah, exactly right. And it reminds me actually of a conversation I had on this podcast with uh, Dr. Catherine Bishop, actually, who was a former uh, Great Britain Olympian. And I think she talked about um, in her career, actually, um, the fact that early on during her sporting career, she was absolutely obsessed with winning. And then since transitioning into the business world, her sort of view of success has changed. It's sort of amended from being sort of number one and aiming to just win all of the time to looking at things a bit more pragmatically. Um, do you think that sort of since transitioning from sort of sport into business, that sort of your own view of success has changed and maybe you've seen an alteration in your own leadership style in the same way? Yeah, I, I again like from speaking to her, I'm still having a fascinating discussion. Um, and look, success is an interesting success is an interesting word. I mean, how do you how do you define success? What is success? It's it's it's, it's different. It, it means different things to different people. So for me, um, I love a guy called John Wooden, who is the he's the legendary UCLA basketball coach. And he won more national championships than anyone in the US. He died a couple of years ago at the age of 99. And I'd recommend uh, your listeners to kind of, you know, there's loads of documentaries and stuff on YouTube. And his, he, he talked around, um, you know, he was asked a question in an interview a couple of years ago, who's the most successful player you've ever coached? And he said, well, that's a really interesting question. You know, is it the guy who came onto the team who was, the Cristiano Ronaldo, who's the star player, who was always going to be the star player, or is it the person that came onto the team that actually wasn't that good but worked really hard and ended up being a, a contributor on the team? So his definition of success is success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction of knowing you did the best, um, the best you're capable of becoming. So talking about like doing your best, and um, so for me. You know, success as a tennis player. Like I wanted to play Davis Cup for Ireland. I wanted to. I wanted to do a couple of things that I achieved, and I wanted to do a couple of things that I didn't achieve. You know, and then, but I look back on my tennis career now, and I say, well, was I successful? You know what? I can kind of, I can look back and say I, I, I gave the best I, I could, and um, and now coming into business, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really it's a really interesting thing. What is what what is success to me with business? And um, you know what, what what is my metric for it? And has it changed? I think it probably has. You know, I think initially it was probably you know around. I don't know if it was around money, but like I kind of wanted to work for myself, which I'm which I'm doing now. And mm. um, so yeah, so I think the success thing has probably moved away from winning and is more around purpose and around need and around giving value to people. And, and I think, you know, if you give value and you have purpose, then you're going to be quote-unquote successful, whatever, whatever way that looks. And unfortunately now, James, um, our time on the programme is starting to draw to its close, um, which is, as I say, a shame because I could talk to you literally about leadership all day. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation uh, up to now. Um, but just before we do wrap up... Um, we know that, of course, we're entering a little bit of an uncertain period still. Um, restrictions um, from the COVID pandemic have, have, of course, gone in England for now. But the situation globally is, of course, very different. So um, as we sort of keep battling the virus and try and sort of move forward into the post-pandemic world, um, what are some of your priorities going to be over the next 12 months? And where are you hoping to be by this time next year? Is that in a, is that personal business or, or yeah it can it can it can be both yeah so it can be sort of in terms of your personal development and also in terms of the uh, the business as well and some of the coaching that you've been doing too. 
Yeah, so, so, so personally, um, you know, there's certain aspects of, of, of COVID that have been extremely tough. Uh, as I mentioned, we're not being able to play tennis and, and, and so on, and restrictions, and like a lot of people have had a lot worse than me, so I don't, I don't want to claim that I'm the worst off that I'm not. But, um, so I think, but there's been definitely some positives, uh, you know, I've been really into hiking and, and uh, different areas of my life like that. And reading a lot, uh, just yeah. So things are things are quite good. So the next the next twelve months on a personal level, I'd like to start back playing more tennis. I'm playing a lot of paddle tennis in the last few years, which is kind of a, a big sport in Spain. It's starting to get bigger in in Ireland, in, in the UK. Playing a little bit of that, and <laughs> I think like everyone, I'd probably like to travel a little bit again mm. uh, when when the moment is right. Um, and then business-wise, yeah, look, things have, things have been good. I came through the business uh, because of COVID, uh, and I feel like I found that mountain there that I'm, that I'm, that I'm looking to climb. Um, so I have an online, an online platform for companies with uh, weekly classes on, on things like networking and, and you know, mental health, uh, leadership, and so on. So, so that's, 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 that's uh, you know, global global course leaders running courses on it. So uh, that's going quite well. So in the next uh, month, I'm going to bring more users onto the platform, share the platform. Um, and then I also wanted to do a business for this. I want to, um, you know, help some charities and stay involved and things like that. So, so yeah, so business 12 months, things have, been, things have been good the last number of months. And um, I think after the initial shock of, of COVID, and hopefully, you know, you never want to, you never want to, um, predict the future but hopefully things are like are starting to look up in terms of mm. people being vaccinated and, and hopefully we're coming out of the other side of this you know who knows when but in the next 12 months yeah exactly there's always that little bit of uncertainty there isn't there but um i think there are some fantastic aims there both personally and business-wise within high caliber collective sort of moving forward helping sort of inspire that next generation of leaders it's very much a mission aligned with our own at the leaders council and i do wish you all the luck in the world with that james and i think actually just given how fantastic this discussion has been that we've had today I'd love to welcome you back onto the program, perhaps in the next uh, few months, just to see how sort of things are coming along and we can sort of review the situation then and just sort of catch up on how things are getting on in making that vision a reality. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. And, and really, really enjoyed the conversation and, and uh, look forward to future chats. Absolutely, James. And until we do hopefully speak again on the program, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well. Thank you very It was a pleasure welcoming James Klusky, former professional tennis player and founder of High Calibre Collective, onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for this period of recovery that we are hopefully entering as restrictions start to lift across the globe tentatively. Um, remember, all, please do continue to look after yourselves and stay safe because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Take care. We'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill and Lord Blunkett now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential Cobra meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. 
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have 
a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.